0: If you've never run a mile in your life, can you call yourself a marathoner? If you've never taken a college level class, can you say you have an Ivy League education? If you've never been in the salt water, can you boast about the tuna you landed? If you start to follow Jesus and nothing in your relationships change, can you say you really follow Jesus? The first three, The answer is a definitive no. The fourth, I'm leaning towards no too. Because one of the most obvious and important measures of how well we follow Jesus is what our key relationships look like. I have a friend named Rod and a couple of years ago, he went to a funeral of a guy that he had kind of an acquaintance relationship with. They kind of knew each other professionally. They went to the same church and he thought it would be nice to go to the funeral and at the funeral he bumped into the guy's son never met before and rod's a gregarious outgoing sort of guy went up and introduced himself to the guy's son and he said your dad was a great guy and the son looked at him and said well then you didn't know him very well and totally shocked rod but you know if your son thinks you're a terrible person how great can your relationships be it's in those key relationships that how well we follow jesus those things are going to play out this dude went to church and his kid hated him there's got to be some connection there so in the scripture we're going to look at this morning is galatians chapter 3 verses 26 through 29 and paul writes so in christ jesus you are all children of god through faith for all of you who are baptized into christ have clothed yourself with christ There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So in our sermon series on Galatians, in all honesty, where have we been so far? Well, we've looked at who's in and who's out. We've looked at what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, and that kind of leads us to how being a follower of Jesus changes our relationships, or should, anyway. But this is a, a really unique passage, and oftentimes it's lifted, out, lifted up out of context. So, And it talks about some important things, so I want to make a couple of points before we look at the rest of the passage. The first is that there are some hard concepts in this passage. There are some concepts that impact and have impacted individuals and entire people groups. Uh, it, talks, uh, it has led to behaviors that have been deeply painful and divisive for people. But Jesus came to redeem the areas that really need redemption, the hard areas, the painful areas. And so we're gonna talk about that a little bit this morning. I also wanna point out that there are differences between, the, between people. But differences are not the same as divisions. We don't have to distrust people. We don't have to hate people because they're different than we are or because they see things differently than we do or because they have different experiences than we do. Differences are real, but that doesn't mean that there have to be divisions. And differences are not the same as being worth less or worth more than someone else. Overall, as followers of Jesus, the baseline is we are all one. And then there's an important principle of biblical interpretation that's going to come up here, and that is that you need to use the easy passages in order to help you understand the more difficult ones. And this passage is, I think, the best guiding principle for some for to help us understand some of the really hard passages about relationships like other passages in the New Testament say hard things like Paul says, I do not permit a woman to speak in church and in other places the bible says slaves obey your masters those are hard things so we want to use the biblical interpretation of taking the easy things to help us understand the hard things and we'll do that in as we walk through the text today so in verse 26 paul says so in christ jesus you are all children of god through faith we're all children of god i like the sound of that i think would all agree with that but How do you get to be children of God? And the point that Paul makes is through faith. Nothing else. We aren't children of God through keeping the law or laws. We aren't children of God through some accident of birth. We aren't children of God because we can buy our way into the kingdom and we can't talk our way into the kingdom and we can't manage our way into the kingdom and we can't bribe our way into the kingdom we don't get there by our race or our national background or our sex or our socioeconomic status we get there by by faith by believing that this good God steps into our world in Jesus shows us what God is like and then through his death and resurrection breaks the power of sin and death in our lives and in the universe. That's how we become children of God. And that's important for us to understand our relationships with other people and how Jesus transforms those relationships. Paul goes on, verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. So let's talk about baptism for a minute because baptism is clothed in a lot of cultural assumptions and traditions. In fact, when, um, oftentimes when people have a new baby or something like that, or they come to the church and they have kids, People will come and talk to me and they're like, what do we do with our kids? Do we baptize them? Do we dedicate them? And in all honesty, ages ago when people came in and did that, I gave them a whole treatise on baptism and what to think. And now I just start with, what does grandma want you to do? Because it'll just be easier to do that. But there's some misconceptions about baptism. Uh, One is that baptism equals salvation. If you're baptized, you're saved. oftentimes that happens like if uh, an infant is really really sick or is on the verge of dying but baptism doesn't equal salvation some people look at baptism as an ordinance just something that you're supposed to do because jesus said you should other people look at baptism as a sacrament it's an outward sign of an inward grace but then you still have the question though to whom should it be done do you do it to infants do you do it to believers and a lot of people In the american church really wonder if baptism is all that important because what you're supposed to do is just say the sinner's prayer and believe in jesus right so i think one of the best texts to help us understand baptism comes out of acts chapter 16 verse 31 where paul deals with the uh, philippian jailer so a whole bunch of stuff goes on and then the jailer says what do we need to do to be saved and verse 31 they replied Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So that's how it gets started. It's belief in Jesus, faith that we already talked about, that saves us. But there's also something about how it includes the household, and that's how we get to infant baptism. The children are raised up in a household of faith that is going to point them towards believing in Jesus then paul and silas spoke the word of the lord to them and to everyone in his house at that hour of the night the jailer took them and washed their wounds And without delay he and his household were baptized that shows what the biblical connection is to belief and baptism sometimes we separate baptism by years or decades but the new testament doesn't do that it's always like boom boom believe on the lord jesus christ be baptized. There isn't any of that separation that occurs. So baptism and committing yourself to Jesus go hand in hand in the Bible. There's never any lapse of time. Um, When you were baptized as an infant, it doesn't save you, but it looks forward to the time where through confirmation or something else, you'll make a personal commitment to Jesus. So I hope that helps when you're trying to think about baptism. So Paul says you were baptized into Christ. And what does that mean? This whole, because baptism is seen as a participation in Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. Paul says in Romans if we're baptized into his death and share in his death, we'll also share in his resurrection. So when Paul talks about being baptized into Christ, he's talking about sharing the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which means that we die to our old selves and are raised to a new life in Christ. So he says, you've been baptized into Christ. That's something that God did. That's something that has happened to you. And now there's something we do. He says, you have clothed yourself. And this is another great Pauline image. And the idea basically is you've got a choice every morning. You get up in the morning and you have to decide what you're going to wear. How are you going to dress? Because how you dress affects how you feel about yourself, how other people react to you. And lots of times how you dress is going to be dependent on what you're going to do that day. And so that's the analogy that Paul is drawing. Just like you get up in the morning and go, I'm going to put on clothes, which will enable me to do certain things today. Paul is saying with this analogy to Jesus, you have to decide to get up and put on Christ today, like you would your shirt and your pants or whatever. It's the same thing with Jesus. You get up in the morning. What are you going to put on today? What character are you going to put on? What outlook are you going to have today? And Paul's point is that if you put on Jesus, then you're gonna look different, you're gonna act different, you're gonna speak different. All of those things change because you have decided to clothe yourself with Christ. So all this talks about the change that's gone on inside of us, or at least potentially has gone on inside of us because we're following Jesus. You've been baptized, you've clothed yourself with Jesus. And now into that context, Paul writes the rest of the passage. Verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's a lot going on about why people think Paul picked up on this one is that maybe it was already a creedal statement another is there are both Jewish and Gentile prayers that thank God for not being born a certain way I mean the famous Gentile the famous Jewish prayer is I thank you God that I wasn't born a Gentile I thank you that I wasn't born a slave I thank you that I wasn't born a woman so maybe this is to speak to those things but At the very least, there are three key areas of relationships that we all have with other people. The first looks at race or nationality. The second, maybe socioeconomic brackets. And the third is the relationship between the sexes. And what Paul is bringing out is that all of these relationships look different underneath the lordship of Jesus. So Jew and Gentile is the immediate concern. Paul's been talking about that for three whole chapters now. So this brings up race and nationality. But remember that in this passage, in fact, in our religious life, the Jews are the insiders and Paul's helping them to see that their Jewishness is supposed to be a blessing to other people, not a barrier. They were chosen to bless the nations, not to act all superior and look down on other people. So we need to remember that in this story, we are the outsiders. This whole book is about whether or not you and I can actually be included. And that's important because most of us are used to being the insiders and deciding who's welcome among us. But the tables here are flipped just a little bit. Now, when we're talking about race and nationality, there are all sorts of ways that we can go with this. But the the fundamental premise is that in the kingdom of God, race and nationality don't matter. So maybe you say, well, this is Washington, not the kingdom of God. And we have laws, and we have borders, and we have an economy, and all sorts of other things, and that's true. But the question that is being raised is, where's our primary citizenship? Is our primary citizenship in the state of Washington, or is it in the kingdom of God? Because our choice as followers of Jesus is to get up every morning and decide whether we're going to put on Christ or to put on our culture. And we're going to have to choose to get up and do the hard work of figuring out how the character of the kingdom of God should inform our political beliefs about all sorts of thorny social issues. If you're gonna have an opinion on issues that touch on race and nationality, what is informing that opinion? Is it the context of the kingdom of God, the biblical text, or is it simply what everybody else around you is thinking? So our relationship to other people needs to be different because they are included by Jesus. We can't perpetuate stereotypes. We can't tolerate jokes because in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And then Paul goes on to say, there is neither slave nor free. We can spend a lot of time talking about degrees of slavery or differences between slavery in the roman empire and chattel slavery in the 18th and the 19th centuries but the bedrock principle is that every person is created in the image of god and it's wrong for people to be owned or viewed as property slavery is wrong full stop this was and is a growth area for the church This is where using the easy passages of scripture, like Galatians 3.28, help us to understand the harder passages. Because Paul does write in another place, slaves obey your masters. And in Genesis, it talks about after Cain kills Abel, he's given a mark where everybody can tell that he's different. And even though the biblical text doesn't say this, it's been assumed in many uh, different places that that was the mark of color. And so the church used both of those verses to justify slavery, but they're difficult passages. They're hard to understand. The passage in Galatians is easy. In Christ, there's neither slave nor free. And then Paul goes on to write a whole book, the book of Philemon. It's short, but it's a whole book, and it's all about an escaped slave. It's about how this uh, slave Onesimus runs away from his master and Paul steps in and says culture might say this you know you need to get Onesimus back he's your property but Onesimus is your brother in Christ and because of that relationship you need to set him free and rejoice and have him home as a brother so that context is there also and the church tradition tells us that Onesimus goes on to be the bishop of Ephesus, which means that Philemon did receive him back as a brother in Christ. And there's even evidence from the early church that in a slave and master relationship, when the slave was in a leadership position in the church, the master actually submitted to their authority in the church. So even though there's a lot of difficulty going on here, I I think the best way that we can put this together is that Paul was working within the confines of culture and was pointing the way toward what the kingdom of God really demanded and what relationships in the church should look like. In the church, we live into the reality of the kingdom of God. There are no slaves in the kingdom of God. So is there a modern day equivalent Well, we know that slavery still exists in various forms, and we should stand opposed to slavery in any form. But I think for most of us, the application point may be more in socioeconomic differences, because we very much still have social stratification and social classes. And it's really easy to think that people who have less, or maybe even people have more sometimes, are somehow of less worth than us. There's something defective about their thinking or the choices that they have made. Some of the socioeconomics, in fact, a lot of socioeconomics, is an accident of birth. And you can't claim to have hit a triple if you were born on third base. So we have to be careful how we look at socioeconomic distinctions in our culture. Here's something that I think is super practical how do you treat service personnel when you go to a restaurant when somebody waits at you or when you're in you know being helped at a store or something like that how do you treat service personnel do you treat them as somebody of less value than you do you treat them as um, you know people that you don't have to be careful about Uh, one of my friends owns a restaurant it's not chris olson it's not fondy he owns a restaurant someplace else And he was telling me that he tells his Christian friends, if you go out to eat and you pray before you eat, you must leave a 30% tip. And we're like, why? It's like, because my staff knows that Christians are going to be the most demanding customers and they will leave the worst tip. So if you're going to pray in a restaurant, leave 30 percent, because otherwise it will leave a bad taste in the mouth of the server. And in fact, Megan, a couple of weeks ago, Megan and I went out to brunch. I haven't been out to brunch in forever. And she called ahead to see about a reservation. Then take reservations. And she said, well, is there a good time to come? And the person said, yeah, come before 1030, because that's when the church crowd comes. And he didn't say it in a complimentary fashion. How are we treating people? who serve us. And then the last couplet, in Christ there is not male and female. And this is another instance of where we need to take the easy verses, like Galatians 3.28, to help us understand the more difficult ones. Uh, One of the verses that is usually used to talk about what is appropriate for women in church is 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. Listen to what it says. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Women will be saved through childbearing. Does anyone want to take a stab at that? And now you know why the passage is difficult, because you have to take that as a whole. Now I've heard people say about that, of course, from the standpoint of salvation, there's no difference between men and women. But on a practical level, there are some things that God designed men for and some things that God designed women for. The problem is that the Bible never separates salvation from the whole person. It's never you're equal in salvation, but unequal in everything else. The Bible just knows the whole uh, package. So I have trouble with that. And if we're talking about differences, particularly in the church, about what women can do, what women can't do, I'll be honest. I think it's a distraction. I think if people would put the same amount of energy into some of the Bible's clearer teachings, we would all be better off. And I'm not saying that we should pander to the culture, not at all. I'm not saying that we should let the culture dictate what we care about or what we do. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But nobody outside of the church is even interested in the debate about what women can do and can't do in church. There are enormous things going on in the world. And when we choose to focus on this issue, it doesn't reflect well on the kingdom of God. However, on the plus side of all of these couplets, Christians have traditionally done a better job, particularly in the ancient world, of promoting equality and breaking down barriers than anyone else. And most of the institutions in our society that alleviate suffering and raise people's qualities of life were and are driven by followers of Jesus from the earliest days of the Roman Empire up until today. It was within within the last decade that the state of New York learned the hard way that it cannot function without Catholic Charities. When it removed Catholic Charities' um, ability to minister, no one else was there to take up the slack that the church was doing in the community. So Christians, Christians, have done a really good job. It's easy to go, oh, here's the, here are the mistakes of the church. Are there growth areas? Absolutely. Have we always gotten it right? Absolutely not. But have we, generally speaking, been moving in the right direction? I think you can make that case. Verse 29 then brings it full circle. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Jesus, You're in. Our tendency is to think in categories, which generally look like us versus them. But those categories don't exist in the kingdom of God. The challenge for those of us who are following Jesus is to live into the new life we find in Christ, to live into the reality of the kingdom of God, to to continually take off cultural assumptions and put on the clothing of Christ and look at our relationship through that lens. So let me ask you three questions. In your heart of hearts, are you approaching God by faith or are you trying some other angle? Number two, what is one thing you can do every morning to put on Christ? And number three, what's a cultural distinction that has changed for you now that you're following Jesus? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcov.church.